Hi, this is Michael Buffer, and welcome to the Box Hard Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Mikey Garcia. It's the monster from the swamps, Regis Ruguru Program. Hey, what's up? This is King Carlos Molina, former IBF world champ. This is Michael, the bounty hunter, 2012 Olympian and your people's champ. This is Charlie Edwards, flyweight champion of the world. This is Fast Eddie Chambers, and you're listening to the Box Hard Podcast with my main man, Joey Coastman. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 248 of the Box Hard Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Coastman. My main man is back. It is, of course, the last voice you hear, actually, before I start speaking every single week. It's the last voice on the podcast. It is, of course, the former heavyweight world title challenger, Mr. Eddie Chambers. Eddie, how are you, my friend? I'm good, my man. How are you? Very good. Like I say, if you're not here with me doing the show, you're on the intro every week anyway. Always great to hear your voice. Um, let's dive straight into the review part of the show. I'm going to fly through this. I didn't really um, watch you know, too much action really over the, over the course of the week kind of thing. Um, I know the results. I watched little bits here and there, but I'm not going to go deep on the analysis type angle. Um, last Thursday... At the bubble in the MGM Grand Las Vegas, um, heavyweight Jerry Forrest, obviously, um, you know, a guy that was supposed to be boxing Big Baby Miller, then Big Baby Miller fouled another ped test, of course, so um, in stepped late replacement Carlos Takam, 38-5 and five with a draw, Jerry Forrest, 26-3, and three. Um, I think he has losses to Gerald Washington, Michael Hunter, and someone else. Um, anyway, Jerry Forrest, you know, should have took took um, advantage of the opportunity. You know, Carlos Takam, quite a big name, especially in Europe. Um, Jerry Forrest, I don't know if you saw it. Uh, I know you didn't see it, Eddie, but they went backstage and Jerry Forrest was having his... You know, like when they go backstage, like with a camera to show you what the fighters are doing before the main event starts and usually they're getting their hands wrapped... Jerry Forrest backstage was tucking into a roast beef sandwich, which I've never seen anyone do that before. And um, it was quite bizarre because he came out to the ring. He, you know, he didn't really do much, to be honest with you, in the the early rounds. And in the late rounds, he did even less, if you can believe that. And um, the trainer of Carlos Takam... um, actually was shouting, hit him in the roast beef, which uh, was quite funny. Um, but yeah, I've never seen that. So Jerry Forrest, a real shame there. Um, Hassim Rackman, I'll tell a little story. Hassim Rackman Jr. I was speaking to him and he was saying, put your money on, on Jerry Forrest. And, um, I called him and I said, Hey, um, how much money should I put on Jerry Forrest? I don't really know much about him. I know that Carlos Takam's a tough, tough guy. Um, you know, um, Rackman Jr. has sparred, um, numerous rounds with, with, um, with Carlos Takam, so he knows him, and he said, yeah, yeah, Forrest, you know, in the end, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how it how it happened, but we were speaking, and in the end, he ended up putting a bet on, but I didn't, which is weird, but he couldn't get to the, 
the casino in time or whatever. So he transferred me the money to put the bet on for him. Um, and he put, I'm not going to go into how much, but he put quite a big bet on. And um, yeah, he backed Jerry Forrest. And of course, it didn't happen. He barely won a round. Um, it was a unanimous decision in favor of Carlos Takam. So I felt bad for... Um, for 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 Hassim Rackman Jr. more than I felt for for Jerry Forrest really because he was he was pretty terrible. Yeah. Um, also on the bill, Carlos Castro moved to twenty six and zero, a win for him against Cesar Juarez, who's now twenty five and nine. Um, Juarez was pulled out on his stall after four rounds. Um, there was a good fight between the two undefeated fighters, Joshua Ortiz, now eight and zero. He was able to beat Joshua Orta. Um, in a close fight, it was a majority decision over six for Ortiz. I think Orta only had a few days' notice, so um, I want to see him get another opportunity again. Uh, that's it for um, Thursday. Just having a little look. On the Friday, of course, um, boxing returned for the first time in the UK since this whole lockdown thing. Frank Warren was the first promoter to bring boxing back. Um on this bill here, we got to see heavyweight David Adelaide moved to 2-0. Um, a win for him, like I say, um, TKO in two rounds against Matt Gordon. Um, we also got to see Hamza Shiraz move to 11-0. He was able to, uh, to to get a stoppage win, actually. His opponent, Paul Keane, who was 12-1, now 12-2, um, retired on his store after seven rounds. That one was for Shiraz's WBO European Super Welterweight title. Paul Keane was actually down in the first round. I actually thought that one would go to distance. I... Um, had a bet on for that to go to the to the to the scorecards and also the main event which did. So I was a bit annoyed there when um Paul Keane's corner pulled him out. I mean he was just losing every round really. They they thought they'd save him for another day kind of thing. And the main event, Brad Foster now thirteen and O with two draws. It was a unanimous decision win for him over twelve rounds against the undefeated twelve and O James Beach Junior. That one was for the Commonwealth and British Super Bantamweight titles. Beach was cut above the left eye in the fourth round and Foster was cut um above the left eye in the eighth round. Um all in all, good to see boxing back, but I I don't know, man. I don't know. I didn't really enjoy the fights, to be honest. That's me being brutally honest. Um, I'm just pleased that boxing's back, though. Um, that's it for that one there. Moving out now to um, just having a little look for Saturday. Did anything happen on Saturday of note? Um, I think... I think there was supposed to be a, a fight somewhere in Mississippi. Not quite sure if that took place now. Um, nothing took place on the Sunday. Um, and, of course, Tuesday. That's that's where we're going to finish up. Tuesday, the 14th of July, two days ago now. Uh, back at the bubble in the MGM Grand Las Vegas, Nevada. It was supposed to be a bill topped by Jamel Herring. He was supposed to be defending his world title against... Um, Jonathan Aquenda, I believe his name was, but Jamel Herring once again, for the second time, test positive for coronavirus. So he was pulled off and um, he was very frustrated because I think he was trying to say he didn't have it and I'm not quite sure, it was quite technical. I spoke to him just briefly. I said, it's very confusing and he said, um, yeah, it is very confusing, but um, you know, he's a positive guy, he's going to dust himself down and, um, you know, come back, I think he wants to box in August, something like that, he still wants that Carl Frampton fight later on in the year, 
Um, but without his fight topping the bill, the co-main event got elevated to the top of the bill. Michaela Meyer, she's now 13-0, and 0, a complete shutout win for her over 10 rounds against Helen Joseph. Who's now 17-5 and 5 with two draws? Also on the bill, um, a guy by the name of Clay Collard. He's now 8-2 and two with three draws. He was able to beat a guy called um, Laurent Nelson, I think. Nelson was down in the first round and uh, twice in the second round where the TKO came for a guy that, like I said, they call Cassius Clay Collard. Um, he's, uh, he's a white guy. Um, I think twice now he's boxed in the bubble at the MGM Grand. And the first one, he was able to um, pull off an upset against an undefeated fighter. So a lot of people, you know, getting behind him. He's a bit of a cult hero, if you like. Um, yeah, at the at the bubble. Uh, moving on to the preview part of the show. Um, later tonight, we get to see at the bubble once again, Felix Verdejo, 26-1, and take on Will Madeira, who's 15-0 and with three draws. Um, heavyweight Jared Anderson, 4-0, and um, the fighter out of Toledo. Young heavyweight, 6'4", he's only 20 years of age. He also has the nickname Big Baby, 4-0, and 4 KOs. He takes on Hector Perez, who's 7-2. and uh, that's it. That uh, that's it for that one. Um, and is there anything on Saturday? I think there's. Um, I'm sure there's a yeah. There's a heavyweight fight in Germany on Saturday uh, for the vacant WBA Continental Heavyweight Title. Ajit Kabayel, 19 and 0, former European champion, um, holds a win, of course, over Derek Chisora. He takes on a guy called Evgenios. Lazaridis, who is a Greek fighter, 32 years of age, two losses, one to Erkan Tepper on points, one to a guy called Samuel Kaji, who I've never heard of, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, anyway, he's back. Um, also, there is um, a fight card, of course, that takes place on... The Tuesday, I don't think I'm missing anything on the Sunday or Monday, uh, back at the bubble in the MGM Grand. Um, former world champion Oscar Valdez, 27-0. and 0. He's in a 10-rounder against Jason Velez, who's 29-6 and 6 with a draw. Velez, if nothing else, is a very tough guy and he can really punch. So that could be quite interesting. I'm looking forward to that fight there. And also on the undercard, Edgar Belanga, who's 13-0 and 0 with 13 KOs. He takes on Eric Moon, who's 11-2. and 2, um, And that one is over eight rounds. Uh, that's really it, though, for the preview part of the show. Just going to quickly fly through some news here, Eddie, before I bring you in for your lockdown, knockdown segment. Um, so the good news is that we get to see the Katie Taylor against Delphine Persoon rematch. Of course, it was on the undercard of Joshua Ruiz 1 in, um, in, in New York. But um, a lot of people on the night felt like Persoon actually... Deserved to win. I was one of those people. And, you know, it was quite annoying, really, because I thought she won quite clearly, but, you know, she didn't get it on the cards. And she went away and tried to do something. I can't remember what she tried to do. She she had an amateur fight. I want to say she tried to qualify for the... I think it was Olympic qualifiers. Even though she's a professional fighter, you know, a former world champion, she was undefeated before that fight against Taylor. She perhaps still should be undefeated, um, if I'm not mistaken. She may have one loss, actually. can't remember. 
Um, and yeah, I think she tried to qualify for the 2020 Olympics and she got beat over three rounds by someone who, you know, I'd never heard of. And, um, you know, she's also a full-time policewoman in Belgium. And anyway, the fight's back on. I'm not quite sure how good Pursun is going to be. I don't know um, how much time she's really got to prepare. It's about a month or something like that. It's a big fight, obviously. And um, I guess during this lockdown thing, she's probably been real busy with her police job in Belgium. And um, again, losing over three rounds to an amateur... I don't know, it's it's just been a bit hit and miss since that first fight took place, but again, I'm not hating, I want to see you know a rightful winner, hopefully we get to see that in the second match. Um, Daniel Dubois and Joe Joyce will be having um, fights themselves, you know, um, fights against other guys in the meantime before they get it on. Um, Joe Joyce will be taking on um, Michael Wallish, that one's supposed to take place on Saturday the 25th of July. Um, Michael Wallish is a guy who, if I'm not mistaken, has been in there with, I want to say, Christian Hammer. And that's completely off the top of my head. I think he was undefeated and he lost to Christian Hammer. I think he lost his O to him, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he also boxed and lost to Effie Jagbar and then Tony Yoka. So he's making his way around the... Um, you know, the Olympians should be a relatively straightforward win there for Joe Joyce. Um, uh, Lyndon Arthur takes on Dex Spellman. That's going to be a good fight there. Another Frank Warren card, July 31st on a Friday, that one. Um, Archie Sharp as well, good friend of mine. He takes on Jeff Afori. That one's going to be August the 20th. Um, Archie Sharp. I don't know. Oh yeah, it is a defensive. It is a defensive. His WBO European Super Featherweight title. Jeff Afori, a guy that um, has beaten a few prospects when he's had pretty much no notice. He's found out he's boxing an undefeated prospect on on you know on fight week, and then he steps in and he's got the job done on a couple of occasions. So he's a dangerous guy with no notice, and he's got plenty of notice for this one. Like I say, um, it takes place on. Um, August 20th, and I'm pleased for Archie as well to be topping a bill. And then, of course, Daniel Dubois returns on August 29th against Eric Pfeiffer, who um, who has a record of 7-0. and I think he had quite a few fights in the World Series of Boxing. He's uh, got quite an extensive amateur career. He beat Tony Yoker at least twice in the amateurs, if I'm not mistaken. So that's uh, that's big there. Um, so that could be quite interesting, but like I say, I've just mentioned all the main events. All of these cards have got, you know, good undercards as well, so check all of them out. Uh, Liam Williams has signed a long-term deal with Frank Warren, so he's staying there for the foreseeable future. Um, as is the undefeated Jack Catterall, it seems like he's been waiting forever for a world title shot. Still undefeated, um, not even sure... I think he's 25-0 and 0 now. Friend of the show, Jack Catter. All the best to him. Um, and Matram have announced as well their fight card that they're going to be putting on on August 15th when um, Julio Cesar Martinez tops the bill um, when he takes on Williams Arroyo. That one's actually going to be in the streets of Tulsa. So that's going to be interesting. They're closing down an, an area pretty much and they're going to put a, a ring in the middle of the street on a Saturday night, August 15th in Oklahoma, live on zone. Um, in the US, so that'd be interesting. Um, I think that's it for the news. Uh, let me just double check, Eddie. Yes, I but oh no, one other thing. Um, 
Shakur Stevenson has vacated his WBO featherweight world title and he's being installed as the number one contender at 130. The sad thing is that he's going to be the number one contender for Jamel Herring's world title. So um, I don't want to see that fight. You know, that's a tough fight for Herring. I want to see Herring remain champion for a long time. But guys like Archie Sharp would be quite annoyed because that's another guy um, in the way of, you know, him getting his title shot and stuff like that. But um, yeah, that's it, though, for the news. Um, Yeah, sorry that that took so long, Eddie. Quite longer than I expected, but let's get into it. The lockdown knockdown, I think it's the fourth time we've done this. Last time we spoke, uh, we spoke about, you know, what can happen if you overtrain for for big fights. You also spoke about your early fights against the likes of Robert Hawkins for the um, Philadelphia State title. And then after that, the Andrew Greeley fight and the Ed Mahone fight, the guy with... um, with a crazy record, he knocked everyone out in all of his wins, and he boxed some big, big names. Um, what will we be discussing this week? We just want to pick it up a not too far after that. I'm trying. This is where it starts to get more interesting. I mean, I guess the other ones are, you know, those fights are kind of interesting, and you know, there was some learning, you know, with it. But now we're talking about, I think, directly after Ed Mahone, if I'm not mistaken, was. Uh, Dominic Jenkins was that? Yeah. Am I correct? Yeah. See, Dominic Jenkins was. This is how it's gonna be. This is how it is. Like Dominic Jenkins basically was my audition, if you want to say, if you want, so to speak, so to speak for for um, Goose and Tudor, because I we had um, you know talked with those guys and they were saying, well, you know, you know, let me let me get a look at him. You know what I mean? Because they really didn't know much about me. They saw my record. They said, oh, the record's good and everything. Got some decent names on there. A couple guys passed the prime. You know how the thing is. And But we need to see what he really can do in, you know, in front of a real guy. So they told us, well, we got to fight for you. You know, obviously at this stage in your career, you shouldn't be looking for no soft touches anyway. But, you know, for us to really invest and, you know, in you and at that point, it was like you win this fight. You get the bonus, you get the sign, you get everything. You know what I mean? We, we, and we're going to ride with you for as long as you, you know, as, for the foreseeable future. So the, the here's what they say with, with the, okay, well, we got a real guy for you. His name is uh, Dominic Jenkins. He's a real spoiler. You know, don't look and think just because his record was at the time, I think it was nine and five. Don't look at that record and think that it's, you know, you know, these desires a nine and five guy. You know, my record, I think at the time was what, like, 22 or something like that and oh or some maybe not that many or 20, something like 26 that 26 and oh at the time um was this your first yeah. tv fight eddie no I, actually this dominic jenkins fight was jenkins fight was actually not televised ah. it was on it was on um the paul williams sean Bay mitchell undercard and it was a non-title i mean of course a non-title for me but um it was uh, a non-televised uh, uh fight wow. but it was a very, very interesting fight because of all the guys I fought, he I think this is one of the few times the guy weighed. I think we weighed exactly the same weight. I think we were both two fourteen, but he was just six foot four. And they say, oh, he's a decent puncher. He's knocked off a few undefeated guys. He's done this. He's done that. So don't go in there taking this guy lightly. And actually, for camp, I remember. Once again, I was starting to move into the direction of like training too hard because now you're thinking, oh, I got this big thing with, you know, Goose and Tudor, these Dan, oh, Dan Goosen, you know, these are, this is the real deal. This is the big time, man. I got to be right. 
So I remember um, I was sparring with different guys in camp, and one of the smart partners I, I had, which well, I don't want to say smart partner, like he was help, he was just helping me. But is uh, by the name of Steve Cunningham, former world champion, cruiserweight world champion, and uh, top title contender at heavyweight. Um, we were sparring, and I remember like I wasn't eating right. And what I mean by not eating right is I wasn't eating enough food. I was I was trying to get myself down to a certain weight. I was trying to be perfect. And 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 I was once again doing too much. And I remember sparring with Steve and I got hit with a little like a little body shot. And I remember it was like, man, and it just it just wouldn't stop hurting for a while. And I'm getting nervous, man. I'm like, man, I can't have these things going on before a fight like that. And then I remember after the sparring session one time, I looked completely depleted. Eyes were bloodshot red. Face looked completely like uh, uh, moisturized. I mean, the moisture, uh, moisture like deplete, the 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 uh, deficient. It was just like I, I just looked. I looked done. You know what I'm saying? And um, he looked at me, and I remember he was like, "Man, you all right?" And I'm like, "I'm good. I just feel a little tired." And I just kept. I was just wearing myself down again, and then once again, I had to go home, rethink what I was doing. All this ridiculous training, all this extra stuff that I was trying to do was really unnecessary. Now, granted, the guy I was fighting and the opportunity was huge, but I didn't want to overdo things and feel like I felt before. So I kind of, you know, kind of downshifted a little bit. Plus, I heard we were going to be fighting in Reno, Nevada. And, you know, and I, don't, I don't know if you know, Joe, but in Reno, Nevada, it's a uh, high altitude. So now I'm thinking, oh, man, I got to get out there and deal with this altitude. I don't want to get tired. So, you know, all of these things are playing in my mind. And once again, I mean, me and my brother talk a lot. And Steve, you know, me and my brother, Steve, and we once again went to, man, stop worrying about these dudes, man. Like, you know, we're going we're going out here to fight and, 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 and we're going out here to beat this guy. But don't put all this pressure on yourself. You don't really, you know, these dudes ain't never fought anybody like you. So don't worry about them. Make them worry. Let them worry about you. So we talked about it went over some stuff and calmed down a little bit and just let things happen. You know what I mean? It was, you know, of course my dad was there too. So, you know, he's, you know, my dad's all high strong. He ain't, he ain't got that kind of, that kind of talk. He's like, I don't want to, you know, he would, he would say something, like, Oh hell with that boy. Just, just, just fight and just do, you know what I mean? Steve, we, 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 we would sit down, we would talk, we would kind of come up with things and, 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 and kind of, you know, relax and just let things happen like they should, you know what I mean? So, so we got out to, to Reno and we're, um, you know, the first thing we wanted to do when we get out to Reno, because me and, and now, you know, I'm always with Steve. Like, Steve is my right-hand guy, you know, all the time. And Steve, until this day, he's like that. No disrespect to you, Joe. You're my man, too. But <laughs> I'm just saying, my right-hand guy, you know what I mean? Like, Ant now is 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 there, too. You know, I got a few real, real close guys to me. But Steve has always been that, you know, that family. So, but so we would go out like, yo, you know, this this high altitude, this is that, blah, blah, blah. He didn't have a fight coming up. So he's like, yo, let's just go out and run, see how it feels when we go out and run. And like I said, I had trained hard, but I kind of downshifted a little bit with unnecessary training. And I remember going out there and they're talking about how crazy the altitude is and all that. So we got out there and I'm like, I start running and you feel the little burn. You know what I mean? There's a little burn that comes to you feeling your chest and your lungs a little bit. But I felt great, actually, up there. Like, I, I was like, man, this actually I feel better than I did when I was, you know, on regular altitude. So maybe this is better for me. And I remember running, and I remember we went to the gym. And funny thing is, we were in the gym. This is a little little side little thing here. Was Paul Williams was was there? And you remember how they always said Paul Williams is only six foot one and a half? That's the biggest lie I've ever heard in my life. Paul Williams got to be either six three, maybe six four. There's no doubt about it in my mind. 
we were sta- I was standing next to Paul Williams for while he towering over me. He was almost the exact same height as my manager's son, who was six three and a half, six almost six four. He was standing also next to James Brown in the picture we had later. And they was trying to say he's damn near the same height as James Brown. And everybody knows James Brown's almost six five. So I don't understand why people keep saying this, kept saying he was like only six one or whatever. I don't know if that was him and trying to seem make himself self seem shorter so that other people wouldn't worry as much or I don't know. And or be surprised when they see him at the weigh-in. But man, the man is tall. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But we saw him in the gym and he him him and another guy he brought with him. And this was literally maybe a day or two before the fight was getting in the ring sparring, like sparring. And I'm, and I'm thinking, oh, they just probably gonna touch it. No, they were going in and they were sparring. I mean, like throwing real shots. And I'm like, yo, don't this dude got a fight in like two days? Like, why is he in here sparring? Like, is it, you can get a cut. Anything can happen. You know, you can get knocked out, break your hand. Any, you don't never take a chance like that within two weeks. But these guys had their own way. They coming from a different part of the country. You don't know. And they just, and I'm like, wow. And I was shocked. But anyway, but we're in there training and we're doing all these, uh, these things. And I'm just starting to feel really good about everything. So fast forward to the, the fight night. So I go into the uh, dressing room and, you know, I'm feeling okay. Everything's fine. You know what I mean? I'm getting a little nervous thinking about the fight and you know, I got, I got a couple of things in my in my in my head now, and I'm feeling a little more relaxed, but I'm still a little nervous. Then I go to start warming up, and this issue I've had with my rib kind of like showed up a little bit, and it made me real nervous, man, because it 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 started to really hurt, like I had a bruise or something. Like it, at first, I started to move around, and I had to take a deep breath because I had made a move, and I felt the rib kind of like lock up or something, and I'm like. And I'm like, oh, what the hell am I going to do? I can't tell these guys my ribs are messed up. Or, and I'm like, now I'm starting to, to sweat bullets. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And as I started to warm up and I just start trying to ignore the pain and let the adrenaline pump and things like that, after a while, I started to warm up. The blood started to flow. I, it, it was gone. So I'm like, all right, cool, cool. I'm like, all right, at least I can, at least I don't got to worry about that. I just got to worry about the guys. Just go out here and fight. And for some reason, I, you know, as soon as that, kind of relaxed and I started to feel a little better I started to really I, I started to feel a great deal of confidence for some reason it just you know it just it just all of a sudden out of nowhere boom I just had this surge of confidence like I had a, even a plan in my mind of what I was going to do because I saw the guy at the weigh-in I kind of I kind of knew what to expect a little bit by looking at him and you know in the press conference and, and I'm like uh, he's you know he seems like a strong guy and from what they're telling me he's obviously tough and Blah, blah, blah. But I think I can, I think I got something for him, you know? So I go out there and the first, the first thing that I was thinking, and I don't know why, but I think, uh, I don't know if this was, I can't remember when that fight happened, but I remember Floyd Mayweather using the jab to the body, real effective, you know, like this, this fight with Diego Corrales. So I'm, I'm thinking about that and I'm like, I, I, I like that with a guy as tall as him and the fact that he's similar in weight or almost the same weight as me, I feel like I can really do something off of that and use that. And that's one of the first things I did. I used the jab to the head. I used the jab to the body and really had him in a weird spot. He didn't know what to expect. Obviously. I mean, he probably probably saw a couple of videos that I had or whatever, probably saw something, but he really didn't know what to expect. And he's one of those guys that probably just say, I'm, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to fight whoever, I, you know, whoever, I, whoever I, fight you know they're, they're obviously not bringing me in to win so i'm just gonna go out here and spoil it he probably wasn't even paying attention or thinking about me 
or worried about what I was going to do. He was just coming in there to knock me out. But um, anyway, so I start with the jab to the body and, you know, an offsetting jab up to the head, to the body. You know what I mean? I just, and I remember starting to bring the hook into it a little bit. And I initially I was like kind of, you know, keeping him at bay and just keeping him, you know, behind my jab before I really threw any big shots. But the hook got in a little bit. I would land it here and there. And I remember just being super accurate. It felt really, really good. And I think I'm not sure what round it was. I think what round did I stop him in, Joe? I can't really remember. I think it might have been a third. I believe. It was the fifth. Okay. And I can't remember what round it was in. I think it might have been the round right before I stopped him. I caught him with a really, really nice right hand. And it was because I had been setting him up through the course of the fight off the jab with both the jab to the head, to the, to the uh, head and to the body and everything and, you know, mixing in the hook and even right hands to the body and different things like that. And I caught him with a really nice right hand. And all of a sudden, boom, I looked up and he was gone. I was like, yo, what the hell? And it was like a, a split second, like you snap the, you know, it seems like in the ring, it's like when you're in there and something happens, it's almost like an hour. It's like, you know, not an hour, but it's almost like, Yo, it was like a whole minute went by. You know what I mean? That I couldn't find where this guy was. It's literally that slow. It just, things start to slow down. I hit him with that right hand and I, and he was gone. I thought that he fucking get out the ring or something. I didn't know where he went. I looked down and I'm like, oh, snap. He's literally bent all the way down. Like, like if you're doing a squat with a, you know, with the bar on your back and you squat with your ass touching the ground, basically, they call it ass to the ground. He went all the way down. Like, I don't know how this guy went that low without hitting the ground and grabbed. And then all of a sudden, the only reason why I really knew where he went was he grabbed my legs and I looked down like, oh, so he grabbed my legs to, you know, keep from going down and to stay up. And I remember like firing a few more shots. I can't remember exactly what point in the round it was, but he ended up making it through to the uh, to the end of the round. And and I think it was the round before I stopped it. And after that. I, if I can't remember for sure, but I remember because there were commentators. It was like, I don't know if it was like, a, you know, like a small time, like, you know, like a, how do you how do you put it? It's like we had these things, this thing called 15 rounds.com. It was like an Internet thing they would do where they were filming the fights, but it wasn't like televised. You know what I'm saying? It was just basically within, you know, I don't know, like us, like a, like a, how do you uh, Internet TV type thing? Mm-hmm. Well, that might have been what they had. Because that's what was going on. I remember watching the video of it, and they were actually saying, "I started to step it up. Like I started to follow up off the jab." Because it, you know, for the first four rounds, three or four rounds, I had kind of just boxed them. You know what I mean? Using the jab, head, body, and all, and really was really, really picking my shots, being active, but picking my shots before I would, you know, decide to like, you know, land some some big stuff. But anyway. In this round, I had started to step it up because I felt like I had him. You know what I mean? The round before, I just almost dropped him, and he was kind of, you know, weakening. You could see him kind of get, you know, almost losing faith, you know what I mean, and realizing that he it just wasn't going to be his night with this guy. So um, I think I, I followed up him with a couple big shots, and he kind of stumbled back, and I hit him a couple more, and I think he buckled again. And I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think the ref just saw where it was going, jumped in and stopped the fight. And I remember the crowd at the end of it booing hard. Like they were just, they, they were so mad. And 
I was like, damn, even when they announced me as the winner, I'm like, damn, y'all hated the fight that much. And uh, the guy was like, nah, they're not booing you. they booing the ref because they wanted to see you just basically take them out. And they felt like it stopped it a little early. So I was like, all right, uh, at, least, at least they're not booing me. And they were kind of, you know, there was a lot of people. I remember after the fight, they came up to me. And one that I really remember was Max Kellerman. And he was like, man, you, you're a special guy, man. You're a really a special fighter. He's like, man, if you you ever think about really, you know, dropping to Cruiser. And I was like, man, I thought about it, man. I tried to get my guys to, you know, do that because I really felt like I have a real good shot at winning the title there. He's like, man, shit, look. And he said it to me like, you know how guys talk when they talking amongst themselves and not no cameras, right? He's like, man, shit, man, you can, you you go down to Cruiser, man, you'll have 20 fucking defenses. There's nobody down there can mess with you. Nobody. And he's like, please, if you, if anything, if you do anything, think about dropping to Cruiser. And I'm like, wow. You know what I mean? Now, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, Matt Kellerman at the time, he was, he was still on the rise a little bit, but he was still well known, you know what I mean, through SPN and all. But I was like, wow. You know, hearing a guy say like that, you know, say stuff about, you know, about me and say, you know, that my boxing ability was so great that guys, I don't know if David Hay was around at that point yet, but to say that guys, any, any of the, any of the guys that were there, was not able to stand up to me. It was it was pretty, it was a pretty good thing to hear for a kid like me who really was kind of lacking confidence sometimes, and you know, and not really thinking the greatest things about himself. So it's good when you hear a guy like that say something like that and really respect you, especially from your peers, guys who were in the sport with you. Maybe not fighting, but but an analyst like that. You know what I'm saying? It was it was, it was really nice to hear. Yeah, and you mentioned there, you know, they were booing the referee. The referee that night, Jay Nady. Um, we were talking about height. We were talking about height. How tall is Jay Nady? He always looks like a giant in the ring. He was a legitimate six four and a half, six five, definitely, maybe more. I don't know. I know he was standing. He was eye. He was eye to eye or higher to Dominic Jenkins. And Dominic Jenkins is a legitimate six four. Because I've had him in camp with me after that fight, so I know he's a tall kid, you know, uh, uh, Dominic Jenkins. But anyway, uh, yeah, Jay Nady's definitely a tall guy. Yeah, he's he's, uh, he's obviously still going. You know, he's been, um, you know, he's been uh, at the bubble in the MGM Grand, even refereeing during the pandemic. Um, he's actually refereed nine hundred and seventy-six fights, which is crazy. Um, that's that's he's got to have probably refereed. I want to say. Uh, I can't think of any other referees that have probably refereed that many fights still going. I mean, he's still going. He's 72 years of age now. A heap of experience. Jeez, he's 72? Yeah, man. Damn, I got to see him. I ain't seen him in a little while. Does he even look that? Like, because I don't remember him looking that old, man. 72. Nah. Damn. He looks good for his age, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, well, there you go. You know what I mean? But he, that was my... Think about where I am now. I'm 38 now. And that fight, I had to be, what, 24? 24, maybe? 20, yeah, 25? Dang, that's a <laughs> that's a good amount of time, man. You know, it was about 13, 14, 13, 12, 13 years ago, man. That's, a, that's good. He's still around. Yeah, it's good that he's still around, still on top of his game. Good referee, I think, Jay Nady. And we're going to go from there because we're going – at that point, what happened was I remember going back to the office. And it was a funny little side story that uh, when I came to um, came out there to actually sign with them, my dad is always looking for me to get some kind of sparring or to do something. And one of my favorites of all time, everybody knows, James Tony, was in the gym. And he was, you know, training or whatever. And so 
my dad was like, yeah, we want to come in the gym, man. We want to spar with James. And I'm sitting there like, I didn't say I wanted to spar with James. And James got word or whatever. I would say, yeah, man, you know, bring him down here. I'll spar with the young fella. Like, he's like, man, tell him, tell him I don't turn nothing down but my collar. I was like, yeah, this guy. I was like, I would, I, I would love to meet him at that stage. It would have been it would have been it would have been it would have been awesome to meet him. Like it would have been a great it would have been a great experience to spar, but it also just just meeting him. You know what I mean? Because the 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 comedic relief that this guy, yo, know, he was he, he's a, he's a funny guy. But anyway, that's a little side note. But anyway, so after never that, happened, he, then. the sparring never happened. He never got a chance to spar. The, the only time that he was in the gym with me at the same time was when he came down and I was getting ready for San Peter later on. Uh, but and he came in and was telling me about because he had fought Sam at that point twice. And he was telling me about, man, you know how you could beat this guy. You, I know you, you. I know Eddie James. You got skills. You better kick this boy ass. You know how James talk. So, but, but, um, but it was cool to see him then too. You know what I mean? I didn't get a chance to see him before, but he's always been one of my favorites and actually my actual favorite now. But um, to have watched anyway. But yeah, we went back to to the to, to the to the camp, not camp, to the office of Goosen, you know, which is down in um in Cali. We flew down because we were going to sign and everything, and we were going to review the tape. And he kind of had like a little signing party, if you will. Had a few of the press people come up and to review the tape, look at the new guy that they got and blah, blah, blah. And everybody was so like amazed. And they were like, man, people don't beat this guy like you beat him. Like you really got a real future. Like it was it was like a brag thing. Not brag, but it was like, you know, everybody pat me on my back type situation. You know, I, at that point, I've never really experienced anything like that. You know what I mean? Like, I've never been to something that something later on in my career that we're going to talk about at a later date happened. It something like that happened too when I was close when I was getting ready to fight Vladimir. But to have something like that for, like I said, a kid from me, a kid like me coming from where I come from, having these people who, you know, writing for big papers and you know, big time athletes and it was just different people. And it's like, man, to really respect and, you know, give me that kind of respect and that kind of, you know, admiration at that point, I was like, wow, that's, that's, that's awesome. It was like, I, I still up to this, it's still today. It's still just thinking back on it. It's like, man, that's great. So, you know, I did it. I signed and I got, it's funny. I got pictures from the signing. Uh, um, and then at that point we were trying to figure out a fight, you know, they were going to, we were looking to go, immediately because i think at that point i was ranked 15 or maybe even a little higher in the ibf so we were looking to go at maybe getting a continental belt as soon as possible and there was an opportunity that the after i signed would that maybe i get a, a fight with this guy and i think it was february i want to say was it february 10th again this is when i fought february 9th february 9th Right. February 9th, I fought Derek Ross. So they were setting up like we got an opportunity. We may have an opportunity with uh, for the USBA title fight this this kid, Derek Rossi. And I remember hearing about him fighting on one of my cards when I was at um at the blue. And I was like, oh, OK, you know, and they said and I remember Steve. like, Oh, man, I saw him fight. You know, he is green as a he is. He is a squares of pool table. He's <laughs> twice as green. I'm like, oh, OK, cool. So, so I'm thinking. But, you know, no matter what people say. And even though, you know, I, I believe what my brother was saying, no doubt about it, but you still got your thoughts in your head and you're still going to be nervous no matter what. But, and then remember, this is my first fight as a Goose and Tudor fighter. I ain't trying to go in there and like make these dudes regret their investment. You know what I mean? So, but of course, 
And you know what's funny? Chris Ariola was on my undercard. He fought. Uh, damn, I can't remember who he fought. It was a. It's funny enough. The guy that he fought was in the, in the. Uh, uh, I, I don't know this. I wasn't there. I wasn't down there, but people were coming back and telling me that his opponent was in the. You know the the where was it? I don't know if it was the hallway at a hotel or the lobby, eating pizza at twelve thirty at one o'clock at night. Two days before the fight, I was like, man, we all know where he's going to be going, where he's going to be. He's going to be going to have to carry this dude out in the bag after Chris get done with him. Because I saw Chris Ariola a couple times fight before that, and we were in the same, the same umbrella, basically, with uh, Duke Goose and Tudor. So I had an opportunity to see him fight a few times, and even on um, at different points. So I knew what was going to happen, you know what I mean? But anyway. Yeah, you're right. Um, you're right. He, uh, Zakim Graham was his name. He got yes. He got yes. he got stopped in three rounds and never boxed again. Yeah, basically. I, and so and we knew that was going to happen. And I remember the guy coming up and telling me, "I remember Lenny, my man, Lenny was like, man, this dude gonna get killed in there, man. I don't know why this dude doing what he's doing. He out here eating pizza and drinking beers and all. I don't even know if it was beer. It might have been soda, but it's like, yo, these dudes, they know where they're coming for. They're coming. It's like lambs to the slaughter. They just know what's going to happen. You know what I mean? But anyway, so and. All these things are happening, and I some I don't know how it happened. I end up coming up with a with a freaking bug, man. I had a flu. I got the damn flu, and I was trying so hard to act like I was cool, trying not to sniffle around the guys. I was like uh, not around Derek because I remember Derek, me and Derek Ross, he had to do the stare down and all of that, and he was a nice enough guy and everything, respectful, cool, but, you know. But I remember I was like trying to hold back stuff, keep. You know, because I was like, you know, coughing up the, the phlegm and all of that crap, not to be graphic, but, and I'm sitting there like, oh man, not another damn issue. Like, what is going on? Every single time you fight, is going to be something. And I remember um, talking to somebody, I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been Bowie Fisher, God rest his soul, one of one of the great trainers that uh, was with Bernard for so many years. He was, he used to always say, man, never 100%, there's always something. And if you're a real fighter, you fight through it. You ain't got no, you, you, you ain't got no excuses. Just get in there and fight no matter what. Don't say nothing about it. Just handle, handle business. And I was like, damn. So those things, those types of things that you say to kids and you say to young fighters and you say to young people in general that from respectable, from guys you respect, you really look at that and you really listen and you start to, you start to epitomize, you want to epitomize what they're saying and what they, and what they, and what they look to look for in a real athlete, a real man. So I'm thinking about that, and I'm like, I know I can't go to my dad for sympathy because he would have said the same damn thing. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna have to deal with it. And um, and I'm I'm talking about like hard to sleep, like you know, somewhat like these cold, weird sweats and then the stuff at night. And I'm like, oh man, trying to get as much rest as I can, trying to do the fluids, you know. And I remember um, it was and, and the craziest thing is um, if it wasn't enough that I was sick, now we're fighting in Suffolk County. Uh, uh, he went to Boston College. I think he. Uh, it, it was a community college gym that we fought in. That was, I think, one of the maybe maybe a I don't know if it was a junior college. I know it was a it was a community college that he had went to or had frequently been at or something. And because he used to play, he played football for Boston College. And um, and I know he he used to be at, at this school. But anyway, it was basically in his damn backyard. So. When first of all, when you come out, now forget me being sick, but when you come out, just to hear the crowd, first of all, you booing the hell out of me. 
and they're, they're Derek Rossi, you know, and getting the clap going. It was almost like a soccer match. You know what I mean? Over in the UK. And I know you know what that's like, uh, Joey. So it's like, man, I'm sitting there listening to this crap. But I don't actually, I'm like, man, look, I'm sick. You know, if it's going to go that, if it's going to go bad, it's going to go bad. So I'm playing to the crowd. I'm like, I don't, I don't care. I'm here now. It, it's on. We're going to fight. I'm going to do what I can. At this point, I'm like playing to the crowd, messing with them, clapping, you know, laughing at them, smiling. Every time he did something to me, I, you know, I would laugh or whatever, trying to, you know, trying to play to the crowd, trying to keep him into it. You know, every time he threw a punch, I'm cheering, you know, shit like that. But, um, Eddie, let me just jump in and say, um, I, I, uh, you know, you spoke about James Tony, and it just reminds me years and years ago. This is this is 2013, so seven years ago, before the podcast and all that. Ellie Secback, who, um, you know, used to watch all of his interviews back in the day, you know, a pioneer for boxing YouTube. I remember, like, he used to say, "If you've got any questions, I'm going to be interviewing whoever it be. Send them in." And I used to, you know, send in questions all the time, and. I actually brought your name up to James Tony once in in a in a list of names. So, I, so my question was, um, name these fighters from one to seven. I think there's seven names. Who's the best from best to worst? This was his answer. You've never heard this, so this is this is interesting. Yeah. Here we go. I will play it for you now. Joey Coastman is asking you. I'm going to read you like seven names of seven different heavyweights. He wants you to list them. In, in the, if you could put them in order as best as you can, as the best American heavyweight. Banks, Ariola, Chambers, Johnson, Jennings, Wilder, Thompson, and Scott. All of them, 100, 99, 98, 97, 96, 95, 95, 94, 93, 92. What is it about Deontay Wilder? 29 yeah. and 0, 29. Come on, man. Deontay, Did you hear it good? I did. So, so I said, "Who's the best from?" I'm like, "Who's the best from like one to seven or whatever?" And he goes, "Hundred, ninety nine, ninety eight. <laughs> <laughs> yo, that's messed up, yo. But that's not, yo, that's, <laughs> but that's him, though. That's why, and you know what? Like most people, be like man, fuck you, like nah, man. That's his. That's him. He would look if you were talking to him. Like if he, if I if I walked up to him and talked to him a person. He would, he would tell me he would be respectful. You know what I mean? Because you know he knows. You know what I mean? I, I'm, and even if he didn't, I, I'm, I'm, I ain't gonna do nothing but laugh at it. Like I mean, it's just like I, when you look at somebody that does done what he's done in boxing, and talking and and being the way he is. I mean, what are you gonna do? You think he's gonna change just because I'm there? No, but he's definitely gonna be respectful. He's gonna because I already I already met him. You know, he talks the way he talks. That's just his that's just his way. Like he don't think anybody could beat him. Even right now, James Tony would have looked like he's pregnant. He still don't think nobody can beat him. And that's just how he is. And no matter what. So I mean, you ain't, I'm not I'm never gonna be mad. He can say what he wanna say. He can say I'm the worst heavyweight of all time. I'm like, thank you, James. Appreciate it. At least I'm in the at least I'm in the conversation. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, man. But back on to what you were saying, Eddie. <laughs> yeah. Kind of lost track a little bit, <laughs> but anyway, oh, but the uh, the whole Derek Rossi, yo, but like I said, okay, I'm sick. We all know that. I'm still feeling a little weak, but I'm in the ring, and I remember they was like giving it like Derek Rossi, and then they start clapping and all, and I'm like doing the clap with them on beat and everything, and laughing and shit, and and they announced, I think they announced him first because he was, you know, he 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 they should have, 
You know what I mean? It was for the vacant USBA. And, you know, they chaired like, I mean, we in a little gym and they made it seem like we was in freaking Caesar's Palace, you know, at the height when De La Hoya was fighting. You know what I'm saying? Blew the roof off of that little place. Uh, and then, of course, you could hear the booze when they when they announced me. They made blew the roof off with booze for me. And um, it was cool. You know what I mean? And I, I just I remember and I remember the first round and him coming out and he was coming forward. He was coming to knock me out. He, they, they filled his head with, you going to knock this bum out, blah, blah, blah. He ain't nothing but a little fat, blah, blah, blah. He ain't, he ain't going to do that. And I remember this is a little side note, too, that, that uh, Teddy Atlas was – this was the ESPN. Uh, I think it was a – was it Tuesday night or Friday night? I can't remember. I think it was a Friday night fight, if I'm not mistaken. Um, was, it a, was it, Joe, a, a Friday night fight? Okay, cool. And, um, and I remember Teddy Atlas was doing – because this was the main event. He was doing – the um you know the the teddy's keys or whatever at the time i can't remember what it was and he did and called it not a little bit or not close it was exactly exactly what i was going to do in the fight i mean to the t like everything he said in the keys to victory that i was going to do or what my plan was is exactly what i was going to do and it's exactly what I did. If you watch the broadcast, I don't know why I can't for some reason I can't find it nowhere on on um online. But if you ever had the chance to watch that broadcast, it was to the T. Exactly that. And um and his thing was that, oh, you know, most people think the chambers is gonna move, gonna go around the ring. And we know that in you know, from what they looked at, they knew that Derek Rossi threw like he would like to call like he th- he has a lot of fat on his punches. You know, what I mean, throws them, you know, looping shots, big shots. And he was saying that, oh, you know, Chambers, what most people think is that Chambers are going to move. He's a faster guy, blah, blah, blah. He's going to be trying to move. I think that Chambers would probably do better to have his hands up high and walk Rossi down and stay inside those big punches and land hit. And I'm like, damn, when I watched the one, I rewatched the rebroadcast. I was like, damn, he called it exactly like I did it. And Crazy enough, like I said, I felt pretty, you know, I was like I was, you know, the flu was going on. I'm, wor- I'm still, I'm like, I'm playing it off, but I'm worried because I'm like, I don't know what the hell is going to happen. So the first round goes off, boom, he comes out full steam, throwing, trying to throw big shots, trying to walk me down, try to lay on me, whatever. And I remember he threw a shot, and I remember I bounced out like pretty far, and tried to throw a jab, try to get him like, you know, a little nervous because of the speed or whatever. And I remember just like feeling like crap, man. I mean, I remember I, I just felt like. There was no steam on my punches. I felt sluggish and slow. And I thought it was just like, what the hell am I? And I was like, man, this is going to be a long ass night. And then, thank God, at the time, I didn't know that this would help. But he kept pressing. And he kept pressing. So I started to sweat. And, you know, once you start to sweat out some of the the, the infection and you start to, you know, like in the corner, I'm, I'm probably hacking up some stuff. I can't remember for sure. And, you know, get the water. And then you start to feel. And I so I, as the fight went from one, two to, you know, the three, those rounds, I started to feel better. And each round I started to feel a little better and a little better. And then, and then by the fifth and sixth round, it was like full-out domination. I still felt a little weak and still under the weather, but I felt a whole lot better. Like I can use what I have. You know what I mean? There will be times like if you're tired and you're weak, you won't be able to use what you have. Like you won't be able to get it off. It'll just feel like, you know, you're 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 in a dream. You know what I mean? You know, you're in a dream and you're trying to punch hard, but you can't move your arms. That kind of thing. Well, I felt the exact opposite. I started to feel an energy shot. You know what I mean? And I remember I said, you know, round by round, just 
beating him. Start beating him more soundly each round. You know, landing shots, walking him down. You know, he's and this is the thing that really got to him was he's 250. I think he was 250 exactly, or 249 or 50 exactly for the fight. I was what? I can't remember. I, I want to say I was like 215, 216 maybe for that. 215. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he's looking at, oh, I'm going to lay on him. Oh, I'm going to wear him out. Oh, I'm too big. I'm going to I'm a, I'm a bruise him. And it just didn't happen that way because now he's looking at this little guy who's not only skill-wise a lot better and a lot more developed, but I'm walking him down and I'm beating him each round and I'm beating him backwards and he starts to go backwards and you know what I mean? And now he's like, man, what do I do? You could just start. And then one eye starts to shut, shut. Then the other one starts to shut. And then you see bleeding a little from the ear. Then I see, I think he had a cut as well over one of his eyes and the beating was just like, and I remember, I think if I stopped him in the sixth or seventh, was it Joey? Six or seventh? seventh. I think it was seventh. Right. And I remember in the sixth round, right before the end of the round, I remember, I think, I think it was a sixth round. It might've been a seventh. It was a seventh actually when I did this, but I remember signaling to the, to the ref, like, yo, just stop the fight. He's not going to win. You know what I mean? Like, look at him. Like he could barely hold his arms up. He was exhausted. His, both his eyes were shut. His eardrum, you could see him bleeding from the ear. You know what I mean? He, his nose might not have been right. It, 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 I'm, there's so much stuff. It, it, I think his orbital bone was messed up. You know what I mean? After the, you know, like he was, to, he was a mess. And the ref, because you know they was, and I don't want to say this, and you know, I, I try not to ever, you know, allude to these types of things in boxing, but I don't want to say they had to fix him. But we were fighting in his area. We were fighting his fight, his place. Everything was his. The reason we accepted that was because we really thought, you know, like I'm, I'm worlds better than this guy. He shouldn't even be in the ring, would be at this stage in his career. And that's why we took the fight in this situation. But we didn't think it was going. And, and to be honest, we weren't really thinking that it would go to decision. You know what I mean? And at least I wasn't thinking that. And my team wasn't thinking that, especially when we saw him fight and we saw a video of him. You know, it wasn't no disrespect to him. At the, he just wasn't really developed at that point. You know what I mean? He had, I think, 15 fights, 15 9 knockouts. And he had fought, you know, a, a lot of competition that would make him look good. You know what I mean? He's not fighting who, who he's in the ring with today. At, at, otherwise, he would have been better prepared, but he wasn't. So we expected, we didn't expect it to go to distance. But these guys are trying to basically like, yo, man, just stay on your feet and try to go. It was a 12-round fight. It was round seven. He could, he, both his eyes were closed, bleeding from the nose, bleeding from the air. He's done. He's the only way he makes it to the 12th round is if we both just sit on the stool and let the clock run out. Because if I throw a punch at him or if he's having to stand up that much longer, he's gone. Even if I don't throw a punch, you understand what I'm saying? So even though, and I think at the time of the stoppage, they had him ahead. And I'm going to tell you, besides that first round, there was no way they had him ahead. He won one round and it was the first round because that was basically the round I was sweating everything out in. And this is no disrespect to Derrick Rossi because he had really improved over, over the course of his career. But up to this point, he just wasn't ready. And honestly, and this is no disrespect to him, but what I brought to the table was always going to be a little too much. He just didn't have the time to get to the point that I had gotten to. That was those, those years had passed him. Those developmental years were gone. So no matter what, he could have gotten better. He could have done this. He could have done that. But he would have never been up to my skill level. And it's because he missed a lot of time. And 
you know, in early in his career because he was playing football, he was doing other things. And he wasn't big enough. Like he wasn't six seven, you know what I mean? Two sixty, all ripped, you know, maybe on some stuff to to kind of use it. So he he didn't have enough to keep, you know, to 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 overcome the skill gap. You understand what I'm saying? So, but anyway. So after the fight, so I have, so we get into that point. These guys should have been stopped the fight, but eventually the guy finally stopped the fight, which I think Arthur Mercanti Jr. was the uh, ref, and they tried their best to keep this guy on his feet, but there was just no way. And I remember seeing, I remember he went to the same hospital as I did because I had, I think I got a cut over my eye too for an elbow or a head, but I'm not sure, and I had to go get the stitches. But he had, he was a mess, man. He really was a mess. And it just goes to show, man, like when you have the opportunity and in, in to 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 really prepare, like say if you want to become a fighter, whatever it is you want to do, and you put the work in, no matter what the obstacles, no matter what the situation is, like look at my situation. Most people don't look at me, you know, even at that stage. And, and I started to, you know, I was on the rise, but, you know, I'm a small heavyweight, a little chubby, you know, most guys looking at me and saying, and they're looking like he can have all the skills in the world, but his body type and his size is really going to make it rough. Because even after I beat Derrick Rossi and I fought a few fights later, they were like, yeah, he's good, man. He's really good. He's probably the best heavyweight in the world skill-wise, but the size is going to be a real problem. And I remember hearing Chris Bird say that later on, and he was like, he's he's great. You know, he got, he's got this, he's got that. And he was really, really respectful and he was cool. But it's like he's you know, fighting those Klitschko's and those big guys like that is going to be a real struggle. But he can do it. He's just going to have to find a way. And that's always going to be the it. That was always going to be the issue for me. You know what I mean? Whether I was going to be able to beat those guys or not, if I had the skills to beat those guys or not, it was like he's not going to be big enough. But regardless of that, put the work in, you put the time in, you do what you got to do, and they'll put you in, you know, you'll get, you'll come to these obstacles, you'll come to these issues, and you'll be able to power through them because of the work you put in because of the determination you've had, you know what I mean? Whether it's from my dad being on my back every day or whatever, it's still, it still got me to where I needed to be. You know what I mean? So I got to thank him for that. But this fight in those circumstances, being sick, being, being in, 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 in what was the, the, the terminology, um, in, in hostile territory where nobody's there for me, but my team, like it's us against the world, basically. And to be able to still just focus and, finally be able to get into the fight once my body started to really react better um it was a testament to what i've done for years up to that point and if any young fighters are listening to that to this you really need to really whatever you whatever whatever you're doing you know what i mean whatever you're whatever you're thinking about whatever's important that you that may be outside of what you're doing in boxing it's not as important if you're going to really make this your career you have to work you have to you whether you hopefully your trainer's pushing you, but if you don't have that, you need to push yourself because you'll get and Lord knows I wasn't supposed to go this far. Most people say I wasn't supposed to make it this far, you know, or that far up to that even up to that point. But if you work hard, you can get anywhere you want. Yeah, well said. And um, yeah, you know that's a <clears throat> that's a brilliant fight to you know to to end on. Like I say, you uh, you picked up the USBA title. Um, just, just three months earlier, the champion was Evander Holyfield. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I didn't even know that. Yeah, just three months before you boxed, uh, boxed for the title, and um, obviously you went on to defend it a few times. I'm sure we'll we'll go over that. But um, 
Yeah, brilliant mm. fight, brilliant win. Obviously, two undefeated fighters in there. Derek Rossi at the time, 15-0. and 0. Um, I want to... It's been quite um, interesting, obviously, talking about the referees. Obviously, Jay Nady, you mentioned Arthur McKenzie Jr. I bet there's, there's something you don't know about Arthur McKenzie Jr. So he... Um, he boxed as an amateur. I don't know if you knew that. Um, I think I knew about that. Do you know who he boxed in the amateurs? No. Juan Laporte. Who? You don't know Juan Laporte? Laporte. So, uh, if that, maybe in a way you're saying the name. Maybe I am, but it's, I don't know. Like... Wait. Juan Laporte. Well, wait. Oh, now you're putting me on the spot. I think he moved through the weights. He was, um, oh man, he was a world champion at, he boxed just about everyone, man. He was a world champion, I believe, at, I think he was WBC world champion at, oh man, oh man. Like a low weight, like one, you talking about Juan Lascano? No, 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 no. Anyway, this guy, you know, he boxed pretty much everyone. He boxed, um, I'm going to just tell you some of the names he boxed. He boxed Salvador Sanchez. He boxed um, Eusebio Pedroza. He boxed um, um, Wilfredo Gomez, Barry McGuigan, Julio Cesar Chavez. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're talking about, yeah, obviously you're talking about ways back, even before Lascano. Lascano was I'm I'm talking about the 80s, really. John John Molina, Azuma Nelson. Mm -hmm. Costa yeah. Zoo, Charles no, I got Murray, you. yeah, Teddy Reed. Um, I want to ask you this. I want to ask you this as well. Um, obviously, you know, like where you started out. I've never asked you this before, but where you started out in um, in Pittsburgh, one of the notable boxers from Pittsburgh was um, oh man, what's that guy's name? He was like forty eight and one, and then he went off what the Paul? rails. Paul Spetafore. Yeah, did you ever come across him? You must have. That's my man, Paul Spetafore. We, yo, he was one of the guys that if you didn't look at him when he was talking and he was in the car with you or something like that, and he was in the back, you would swear he was a black dude. Like you, you would not. He, he's white as snow, but you would swear he was a black dude because he grew up in, you know, he just grew up in those surroundings. But that's my man. I remember he came to my fights early on in my career. He was a, he was a real, and I used to like. I used to like kind of try to mirror some of the stuff that he did because he was he was slick, real slick. Like, like, and he's a southpaw, and he he would and he. I remember he was on a long. He had that long undefeated run, and he was fighting guys that were you know good fighters, but obviously, you know they weren't championship level guys, all of them. And I remember he had fought the one fight with um, uh, Victoriano Sosa, and he knocked him down bad like two or three times in the fight, and he came back and won. But, I mean, he, he, was, he was one of those guys who was so slick, he would end up behind guys all the time. He did it all the time. So I really tried to pick up a lot of those, those angles and things like that from him. But, yeah, yeah, I knew Paul really, really, really well from an amateur on up. Yeah, that's interesting. I never knew that. But, obviously, he, uh, he also had that infamous sparring session with Floyd, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, I remember hearing about that. Floyd, Floyd from what, you know, what they say is Floyd wasn't in the greatest shape. But when I look at Paul, now I'm not saying that I think he would have beat Floyd, but Paul would be a tough matchup for Floyd because Floyd, even though Floyd's a, a good puncher at those weights, I mean, when we talk about 135 going up, like he he was like he was a good puncher, but 
we got to look at what Paul's strengths were. Were they were defensive? You know what I mean? He was a, he was a good offensive fighter, but his defensive movement, his footwork, was what really set him apart. And Floyd is going to have to come to a guy like that. Like he's not going to run. I'm not saying he's running, but he's going try to outfox you. That's Paul's style. And Floyd is obviously most people. He's the number one guy. That, you know, with doing that. But it's just the style matchup. Him being a southpaw for one makes it a little harder. Him being supremely sl- slick is another aspect as a southpaw that is going to make it hard for 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 Floyd. Not not saying that Floyd wouldn't have won, but that would have been a tougher fight than most people realize. Yeah, for sure. No, another interesting thing there to to just put a cherry on the on the icing on top of the cake. But yeah, that's been another episode there of the lockdown knockdown. Um, like we said, you know, we're we're moving on to the bigger fights now. We're getting there. Um, and next time, Eddie, I guess we'll be speaking about what's kind of coming next. I don't know if there's any interesting, uh, you know, training camps that you want to speak about next time or whatever around that kind of time. But the fights. The fights, of course, that followed the uh, the Derek Rossi win are, um, you know, Dominic Gwynn, Calvin Brock, and um, Alexander Povetkin. So they're going to be interesting. Any training camps around that time that we'll speak about? All the training camps now are mine. You know what I'm saying? As we're not moving to that stage. You know, now I'm going I, – I went to camp down in Florida for the next fight, so I can say that. And, you know, we'll go, go from there. And the funniest thing – is as much and, and it was hot at that time if i'm not mistaken i think it was close to the summertime um actually it was may it was in may matter of fact we fought the day before uh, uh de la Hoya fought who the hell it was a huge Trinidad, fight maybe was it it might have been. been just a guess it was it was it was may it was on single de mayo they fought on single i think they fought on single de mayo mine was on the fourth i fought dominic Gwynn at in the palms and i want to say and it's funny chris earl fought malcolm tan i remember malcolm tan a lot of people don't remember malcolm tan but anyway um it was uh yeah i, I know and, and doing you know was crazy is i remember guys that i did i watched like nba guys right seeing me and this was like he was just making it to the NBA. There's a guy, but you, you guys don't even know him. He's probably he was in the league for a while and he was doing all right, but he wasn't, you know. But a name, a, a kid by the name of Corey Brewer, who was in the NBA for for a while. And I remember them dudes looking at me like, "Yo, that's the dude, right?" You know, like looking at me like I'm like a star or something. And I'm like, I mean, I headlined in the car, but I'm not really that yet. Like y'all, I'm, I'm like y'all guys are in the NBA. I should be looking at y'all. That's how I was thinking at the time. I'm not thinking I'm anything special. But I'm just, but I'm fighting on these, I'm headlining these cards now and, you know, moving up and moving up and moving up. And it's like, wow, you know what I mean? Now you're starting to get respect from other athletes and they're actually starting to mention your name sometimes. Like I've actually heard a few guys mention my name when I'm like, wow, this is incredible. So, you know, as it goes on, these types of things come up. So, you know, we'll, we'll get into that the next time. Yeah, we'll certainly get there. And, um, just checking it because, uh, that, that, um, that guess at, at Felix Trinidad was a complete wild guess. I was eight years too late. Of course, the fight that you're talking about was Floyd Mayweather and Oscar De La Hoya. <laughs> oh, that was it, wasn't it? Yeah, that was it. I remember watching it too. I think I watched it after mine because I, well, I, I think, wait, did we watch it? Yeah, yeah, we watched it. I mean, I, th- I can't remember where we watched it though. Yeah. Okay. Or did we, 
Yeah, we watched it. No, we watched it at home because we flew back. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry about that. No, yeah. <laughs> but anyway. So, yeah, we'll get on to all these things next time. But that is it. That is it for the talking. We brought you the review part, the news part, the preview part. Eddie's brought you another another edition of his lockdown knockdown. We love that. And it's now time to welcome our sole guest on this week's podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the former WBC Super Featherweight World Champion. It is, of course, Mr. Jesse James Leha. Jesse, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely my pleasure. So, Jesse, I want to ask you, of course, you're San Antonio, born and raised. Um, what was life like when you was you know, a kid in that part of Texas coming up? Well, I didn't start fighting until I was 19 years old, mm-hmm. but my dad was a boxer back in the 60s and i was born in 66 so my dad's career had kind of ended before i was born um but he was a boxer and he was actually the first san antonian to ever make it to the national golden girls finals here in the united states and that's a big deal that's a real big deal back then uh to make it to the golden girls finals um then after that he turned pro and back then they were just fighting you know to make money to support their family and stuff but he was a pretty good fighter, and he, he could punch. He fought, matter of fact, when he fought in the in the Golden Gloves when he was young, uh, I guess he was 17, 18 years old, he fought at 112. At the end of his boxing career, when he stopped fighting, he was uh, fighting at 150. So um, he had a lot of power. Uh, you know, he, had, he was a power puncher. But, you know, didn't make a lot of money, but fought some good fights, uh, but didn't let us fight. Okay. He didn't want us to fight as boxers because – because it's a rough sport. He didn't want his sons fighting. Okay, that's interesting. Um, that that brings me on really to my next question. What's your earliest memory, you know, of of of, of starting to box? Perhaps first putting on a pair of gloves, if you like. Uh, well, when my dad was training, we would go to the gym and watch him train. Uh, I was probably four or five years four years old at the time, and uh, this is when he was making a brief comeback in the nineteen sixty nine nineteen seventy. So I was four or five years old, and I would go to the gym, and we would watch him box and, and uh, you know, put some gloves on like typical kids and box inside the ring. And that's that's her. And then, oh, and then every single day probably at my house, my brother and I would put on the gloves. Anytime a big fight would come on, we would put the gloves on and box each other or put socks in our hands <laughs> and, uh, you know, slap, slap box for the whole fight, and I would always get beat up. <laughs> And um, obviously, you know, you you were, am- you were an amateur for a while. Um, I think you only had about twenty eight fights, so uh, not not a real long amateur career. I believe it it lasted about three years. Um, what was your highlight moment, if you had one, of the amateur game? Um, you know what? Just it's ironic that you asked that. Three days ago, four days ago, I got a video of one of my final fights as an amateur. I was fighting in the Western Olympic trials in 1988 and I had to fight four fights in a row. And the last fight, the fourth fight being against one of the, the a right guy in the United States by the name of Michael Black. And, um, and I was able to see that. I've never seen that fight. I've never seen the fight. And someone sent it to me the other day and I've been at some, I've posted on my Facebook, but that was a great, great fight. And it was a tough fight. But that that was a great fight for me because the winner went to the Olympic trials and that was getting me to the Olympic trials. I only had 30 amateur fights at the time. He had 95 fights. And uh, I beat him and I went on to the Olympic trials and I lost 
to the Olympian uh, Kelsey Banks. Yeah. Okay, but yeah, like I say, quite a quite a brief um, a brief amateur career. But let's get on to the pro career. Um, you made your debut October second, nineteen eighty eight, in San Antonio. Um, you boxed a guy mm-hmm. by the name of Oscar Davis. You got him out there in. In, in the first round. Do you recall much of your debut? Do you remember being nervous at all? Oh, yeah. I remember that fight clearly. Um, Oscar Davis was probably like almost six foot tall, 125 pounds, and I'm 5'5". Five five. Um, and so I knew I was... But I had, was, I had so much confidence. I, was, I knew I was a good fighter because, you know, I fought in the Olympic trials, so that means, you, you know, you're a decent fighter. Um so you had to be special if you were going to beat me at that time. You know, I was, and plus, you know, I, it was in San Antonio. I know the game. But you don't know what the guy's capable of doing. It only takes one punch in boxing to end the fight. So you're still nervous, and, you, and you're fighting in San Antonio in front of your fans. So it's exciting, nervous, and all that put together. But, you know, I, put, I was able to put him out in the first round, and, and it was a great start to a long career. Yeah, and um, like I say, it wasn't really an easy start. Um, you know, you 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 had tests pretty much straight away. I want to skip forward to April of nineteen eighty nine. Uh, you boxed Manuel Gomez, who at the time was only one and zero. Of course, he went on to challenge twice for world titles, uh, but at that stage, you know, yourself or him hadn't really done much as pros at that point. Uh, the fight was only a four rounder. You were down in the first round, but you managed to win unanimously. Like I say, only in a four-rounder. We don't get to see that too often. Do you remember much about that fight there? Yes. And uh, he actually came, went on to fight like 154 pounds. He was a big guy yeah. when I first fought him. But uh, he caught me with a good punch. It was, it was good punch, but it was I was a little off balance in the first round. I went down, got back up right away, and then just pushed hard for the next three rounds because I knew it's a four-round fight. You, you, can't, you can't get behind very quick, so... Um, I fought hard the next three rounds, and it was a great fight. And then I went on later on, two, three, four, five years later, I saw him fighting big fights and on TV. Yeah, like I say, he went on to challenge twice for world titles in the future. Um, 18 months after that that fight there, by this point you're 15-0 and 0 with 10 KOs. Back in San Antonio, you box Edward Parker in, in a 10-round contest. Um, it was the first time you'd actually gone past six rounds as well. So the fight goes all ten. The fight ends in a split draw. Do you remember much about about that night there? Yeah, I, I remember everything about that fight. Um, good fighter, a lefty, I believe. Edward Parker was a lefty, I believe. But he's very slick and and just very knowledgeable. He was a, he'd been a fighter for a long time. Um, he'd been a fighter for a long time. And uh, it was a close fight. You know, a lot of, if you ever watch some of my other fights on uh, TV, fighters, uh, the broadcasters always refer back to that fight that, you know, they claim that they all knew I won the fight, but that sometimes some of the judges wanted to make it sure that they weren't uh, voting on a San Antonio fighter. Like they weren't going, um, uh, they weren't going to do a hometown thing. So they go the other way, kind of. But, uh, you know, two or three broadcasters always said I won the fight. Fairly easy, but they made it a draw. But, you know, no matter what happened, it was a good fight, good learning experience for me. And you learn to um, to dust yourself off and, and keep fighting. And, you know, I didn't lose. So, I, you know, it was it was okay for me. I was ready to go. Yeah, and like I say, that, that draw there, whatever, it should have been a win, of course, but that draw, um, you know, spurred you on for some brilliant things. Because after that draw, you know, you put together... 
an 11 fight win streak which included um you know wins over the likes of former world title challenger Mark Fernandez future world title challenger Miguel Arozal former world title challenger and Olympic gold medalist Steve McCrory former world title challenger Jesus Pohl um, former IBF world champion Troy Dorsey and then of course two weight world champion Louis Espinosa um, before then getting your first attempt at a world title so like I say you put together this brilliant win win streak and um, yeah the, the, the world title attempt takes place on Friday September 10th 1993 at the Alamo Dome in San Antonio you're 26-0 and with that one draw at the time the champion in the opposite corner 36 and 2 with one draw. That man, of course, being Azuma Nelson. He put his WBC Super Featherweight title on the line. The fight results in a split draw over 12 rounds. Tell us about that one there. First of all, what a list of fighters before Azuma Nelson. Exactly. Man. Luis Espinosa, Troy Dorsey, Miguel Zarazo. Uh, uh, man, I had a list. And that was a good matchmaking. Uh, my, my manager, Lester Bedford, you know, had confidence in me to be able to put me up against those great fighters. And that got me ready for uh, Azuma Nelson. But after I fought Luis Espinosa, I knew, I knew that I belonged in the game. I knew that I was capable of doing big things in boxing because I beat a great champion, someone that can punch with both hands. Um, matter of fact, after that fight with Luis Espinosa, I had five cuts all over my face because of just how hard he hit. Wow. Um, but, uh, it was just a good fight for me, but um, fighting Azuma Nelson was the ultimate. And and let me tell you a story about that. Uh, when I fought Azuma Nelson, they came down to San Antonio about a month early before the fight because they wanted to get acclimated to the weather or because it's hot in San Antonio uh, and, the, and the time change. So I'm in the gym. This is probably about four weeks before the fight. And we have we, we, Azuma's going to train at the same gym that I'm training at. And, uh, but at a different time, I wasn't trained from four to six and he wasn't trained from six to eight. But one day he comes in at four o'clock with his crew. They all walk in his training camp and his sparring partners and everyone else. And one of his trainers come up to me and asked me that Azuma Nelson wants to spar with me. This was four weeks before our fight. Wow. And I looked at him and, <laughs> and so, you know what Azuma's doing? Azuma is playing mind games with me. What he's saying is, I'm not even worried about you. I'm willing to spoil you right now if you want, and but I'm going to beat you during the fight. That's how confident he was, or just playing mind games. And I told the trainer, no, don't worry. We'll fight. We have four weeks to go. We'll fight him in the big fight. And so that's how we left it. But it was funny because, you know, he was playing mind games with me. And it was good because he got in my mind at that time. Yeah, and just to reiterate that that you know that that win streak with all those impressive names was just quite unbelievable. I you know I went through it very quickly, but just amazing wins there. Um, and yeah, that that Azuma Nelson fight, of course, um, he was announced as the winner, if I'm not mistaken, until one of the judges re- uh, realized he'd he'd miscalculated his scorecard. That's right, right? Yeah. So I was matter of fact, um, they announced him the winner. We go back to the. We go, and I thought I won the fight, but, you know, it was a close fight, and I, and I saw some mistakes I made uh, trying to protect the lead that I had, and uh, which is a no-no in boxing. You don't try to protect the lead. You keep winning. But anyway, I go back to my dressing room, and within a couple of minutes, they come in and tell me that the fight was declared a draw because someone made a mistake on the scorecards. 
and I was okay with that. I, I, it didn't bother me. I wasn't happy or sad because I thought I wanted to fight anyway, so it didn't do anything for me. Um, I just, you know, I figured, okay, well, that's good. Maybe there'll be a rematch. Yeah. And there was a rematch. Yeah, of course. And um, immediately after the fight, again, you took a keep busy fight against Thomas Valdez. You stopped him in three rounds uh, before the rematch took place. It was eight months after the first fight. This time it takes place in Las Vegas, May 7th, 1994. Um, yeah, tell us about the night you became champion of the world, Jesse. Yeah, before that, though, remember, there was a, a uh, the fight that was supposed to happen before that was cancelled, I believe. Yeah, it was canceled, the, the, the rematch. It was a January fight, and that was canceled. We had to wait till May for the, for the rematch and because Zuminosin had got hurt. Um, so and then the May 7th, 1994, we had the rematch in Vegas. And I went into the fight doing the same thing I did in the first fight, but the only thing I said I was not going to do was I was not going to protect the lead I had or I would have during the fight. So the last um, four rounds or five rounds, I went after my I, you know, put more pressure on him and and made sure I won the fight uh, fairly and, and that there was going to be no doubt that I was going to win the fight against Zuma. And describe just to me the best you can um, what it feels like or felt like I should say to become a world champion to hear those three words and the new after a you know after a good performance over twelve rounds you won unanimously of course. You know that's I get that question asked to me every once in a while and. I always tell people it's indescribable of what you feel like inside because, first of all, you, I mean, you're excited, but beyond belief, uh, everything that you've worked for, all the fights that you've had, the amateur fights, pro fights, every single mile you've run in your career, in your life, um, the punches you've taken in the gym, in the ring, during fights, it's really hard to describe. And I always tell people that it's like telling a mom who gave birth, how did it feel to give birth? It's so... It's unexplainable. And so winning a world title like that, it's kind of unexplainable. You, it just, it's, you're on top of the world at the time and you feel great. It's, uh, you've accomplished something incredible and that's what you feel like. But to put those into words, I wouldn't do it justice. <laughs> yeah, I love asking that question because I always hear, uh, you know, basically boxers getting quite uh, lost for words really trying to explain it it's, it's interesting yeah, exactly um just, exactly. just four months later you return to the ring to defend your world title against former world title challenger gabriel ruelas at the mgm grand of course ruelas had boxed azuma nelson about 18 months prior that was where he he lost the uh, you know you, you um a majority decision. It was quite a close fight, if I remember. But this time, luck was on his side. He was able to beat you unanimously over 12 rounds. Tell us about that one. Uh, just a tough, tough fight. Um, uh, early on in the, on the fight, um, he caught me with the overhand right. He dropped me. In, I think it was the second round. He caught me in the, drop, in the second round. Matter of fact, I was talking to somebody about that today at the gym. Um, it, when I when he dropped me, I tore my ligament in my ankle. And I fought 10 rounds that way. And uh, it was still a close fight, but I dropped him, I think, in the sixth or seventh round. But I just, I had never had balance after that. It was my right leg. Never had balance. And it was just a tough, tough uh, hill for me to climb, uh, fighting one leg against a great fighter like Gabe Ruelas. And um, I didn't fight for that. I didn't fight again after that fight for nine months to let my leg heal. But it was, it was disappointing on my side because, I knew I was a better fighter. 
Uh, I just knew I was a better fighter, but things happened, and he caught me with a good punch. He dropped me, and I tore my ankle at the time and had to fight 10 rounds to tore an ankle. And still gave him a tough fight. Yeah, like I say, credit to you for finishing on your feet with that uh, with that injury. Eight months later, you were back. You came back and um, completely shut out Jeff Mayweather over 10 rounds. Uh, two months after that, you stop Rodney Garnett in seven, and that's when you were given another shot at a world title, this time at the Madison Square Garden in New York. December 15th, 1995 was the date for the WBO lightweight world title against the then-champion Oscar De La Hoya. Um, it was a short night, obviously. Your corner pulled you out after just two rounds. Uh, tell us about that fight there. I knew nothing about this guy, this kid named Oscar De La Hoya. I'm teasing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing. So I, I knew that, uh, I, I mean, nobody wanted to fight Oscar at the time. Nobody wanted to fight him at the time. And I said, hey, I'll fight him. So one thing that I did in my career was I didn't want to take easy fights because that doesn't get you anywhere. I went. I took the, the hard road. So I traveled the hard road. Um, I fought. I challenged myself to be the, the best, to be a great. And I fought guys that were bigger than me. You know, Oscar and all these other guys that were just, you know, way outweighed me or, or just whatever. But I wanted to fight the best guys in the world. I fought the best fighters pound for pound, pound for pound in the world in my era. Um, and that's what that's what a fighter does. He challenges himself, and that's what I went to. I didn't want easy fights. I wanted hard fights, and so I, I offered to fight Oscar in, in Madison Square Garden. And just, uh, you know, I gave it all I had, and that's all I could do is give the best, and, and I lost. And he's a great fighter, and it proved to be a great fighter. He was a Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame fighter. Yeah. Absolutely, and um, six months six months after that was when you had the trilogy fight against Azuma Nelson. Um, he managed to, you know, have a rematch with Gabriel Ruelas. He stopped him in five rounds. He got, um, you know, he got his old belt back, if you like, and you got a shot here at your old title back down at super featherweight from lightweight, of course, um, back in Las Vegas yeah. again. June the 1st, 1996. This time, however, you'd lose by TKO in round six. Quite a shocking result um, looking back now. Tell us about that one. Yeah, it was shocking for me. He stopped me because I was cut really bad. But he was beating me anyway. I was, I was, I was, he was, he was going to beat me either way. He was going to stop me, but I was cutting. That's why they stopped the fight. But uh, he was going to beat me that night. I just, it was one of those nights I felt weird. Uh, it's a, there's a funny story behind this, and I don't know if you want me to talk about it, but it's a funny story because Azuma Nelson, Azuma Nelson on his, in his book wrote that when I beat him in Vegas for the title in our second fight, that he thinks I put a hex on him. And, and that was funny because in our third fight, when we were in the ring, and there, I got into the ring first because Azuma was the champion, and they're bringing him out in all his uh, his people with the the hair the hairdress or whatever you call it whatever they do in Africa they're playing the drums and the bongos and everything else. He's coming into the ring. I look at my dad and I said something's different. Something feels weird. I had so much energy before the before that, and right as he's walking in, I my legs were weak, my body was weak, and I looked at my dad and I said something's wrong, meaning like it felt like someone put a curse on me. And so when Azuma Nelson and I talked a few years ago, we laughed about it because 
he thinks I hexed him, and I say he hexed me. So it was funny about that. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been something in the air. That so, that, so, those, so those were those were our excuses, no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, after that. You embark on a six-fight win streak, which included two wins over the eventual world title challenger, um, Joel Perez, before boxing Azuma Nelson for the fourth and final time, July 11th, 1998. 22 years ago this week, uh, the fight took place at the Alamo Dome. You were able to win unanimously over 12 rounds. Um, Tell us about that final fight between you both, and of course, you know, just the feeling that you close that chapter with a win again. Yeah, and, and that was tough for me because you have to remember, I just got beat Azuma Nelson a few fights before, and he stopped me. Yeah. So he still had the power. He still had the technique, the speed, and everything else. And he was a tough fighter. And so I knew I had I was going to be in for a tough fight, but, um, you know, I was ready for it. It was To me, it was like something happened in that third fight. He beat me first square. But I, in the, in the fourth fight, I just did what I did in the first two fights. I just put pressure on him. I used my movement. I had, you know, kept a jab in his face, and I was out punching him. So I did the same thing I did in the first two fights. But um, it was a great fight for me and a great win and a great uh, way to end the, the four-fight series with Azuma Nelson. Which of the four fights did you feel was the most satisfying for you? Was it that fourth one? Obviously, it wasn't the third one, of course. <laughs> No, yeah, the second one. It was the second one. Because I knew I won that. I, I have, you know, a big thing that I won the first fight. And I just wanted to make something right. And it was my first world title. It was my first world title. And then, you know, the fourth, the second world title was our fourth fight. It was a world champion. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's interesting to know. And four months later, you get... Um, another shot at a world title, this time the IBF lightweight world title. So you're back up at lightweight against the then champion Sugar Shane Mosley. Um, I don't suppose you look back on that fight with the fondest of memories, but let's speak about it. You were down, I think, three times it was. Your corner stopped it um, while you were on your stall at the end of round nine. But, you know, you, you showed your toughness there once again. That was a tough, tough fight. Yeah, it was. It was incredibly tough. And so what so there's always a story behind every fight. There's a story in every single one of my fights. But this story, to me, says a lot about my fortitude, about my my drive. So I was supposed to fight Gabe Ruelas in a rematch before the before the Shane Mosley fight. And I was supposed to fight Shane Mosley. I mean, uh, Gabe Ruelas again. But during training, I heard uh, one of my sparring partners hit me in the back and separated my rib from the front sternum. And this was 98. So I had this injury the rest of my career. So I said to myself, I'm not going to fight Gabe again being hurt. It was a 10-round fight with Gabe. I said, I'm not going to fight being hurt. So we pulled out of the fight with Gabe because of my rib. Two weeks later, I get the call. My manager gets the call to fight Shane Mosley for all three belts. You never say no to a world title fight. So they gave me a three-week notice. I had to drop 17 pounds in three weeks to fight Shane Mosley. I thought I was going to die during weigh-in. I was so weak. Think about it. I was, I mean, I wasn't ready for a fight because I, I really had postponed the fight with Gabe and So I didn't train for the next two weeks, and then, I had to drop 17 pounds. I dropped 17 pounds, and then I go nine rounds 
with with Shane Mosley. And ironically, about a month ago, he posted on Facebook that I gave him one of the toughest fights he's ever had at 135. Wow. And I only had a three weeks notice. Yeah, I had to. So that's that. I'm happy about that. I mean, I, want, I lost the fight and I felt devastated. I hated losing. I hated losing. But, you know, I get all you can do in your career and all you do in your life is give 100%, give your best. And uh, you can, if you win, you have your head up high. If you lose, you keep your head up. Yeah, and what he said there, that speaks volumes because, you know, Sugar Shane at, at 135, that was probably his best Well, that was his best weight, you know. He was such a brilliant fighter there. Um, some people would say one of, yeah, the, was, one of the best. Yeah, he was dangerous. Yeah, one of the best lightweights of all time. So, uh, yeah, that's that's a big compliment there, you know, on three weeks' notice, like you said. Yeah. Um, yeah. After that Mosley fight, of course, you put together a further three wins before boxing um, Juan Lascano, the the Hispanic causing panic, one of the best nicknames in boxing history for me. Um, the fight though ends controversially, a split decision loss for you over ten. Mm, I'm not quite sure you agree with the outcome. Tell us about it. August 2000 in Connecticut. Yeah, I mean it was uh, Gary. Was Gary's Gary promoter? Shaw. Gary Gary Shaw. So we all know Gary Shaw's, you know, his promoting, but. You know, there was a fight that Bobby Chez was calling, uh, broadcasting the fight. It was a play-by-play. And uh, and Albert, uh, not Marv Albert, but the, his brother. Um, and they had me win. They had a Showtime voting during the fight. So it was on Showtime TV. They had the, show line, the Showtime online voting. And the people had me winning 10 rounds to zero. I didn't think it was 10 rounds. I thought it was 7-3. But they gave the fight to Juan Lascano, and everyone knew what happened. And it, I'm glad it was on TV because people knew I didn't win the. People knew he didn't win the fight, and that I won the fight. And so I had some justification of, over that. But it's still a loss, and it still hurts. I hate seeing that seven losses in my career because it's it, you know it should have been six, not seven. And I hate seeing that seventh loss. Yeah, no, I understand, and. Um... Three months later, you're back. You grab a, a unanimous decision win over former world title challenger and two-time beater of Arturo Gatti, Ivan Robinson. Uh, two months after that, you beat Fred Ladd. Six months after that, you get the fight against Hector Camacho Jr. Now, he, of course, was 32-0 and at the time. The fight took place on July 7th, 2001 in Brooklyn. Uh, the fight ends prematurely, though. A no contest in the end of everything after five rounds when... Um, of course, your team, uh, you know, I believe your team went to the, 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 the board or whatever to, you know, to sort out a strange yeah. decision at the time. A technical decision on the night was given to Camacho, but very weird. Yeah, it was a, it was a weird call. What they, what, we said we should have won the fight because he was cut and the doctor said he could fight and he did not want to fight. Mm-hmm. So they called him the winner of the fight the whole bit. But when we, uh, we, uh, protested and what they came out with that the fight is a no contest because the bell for the sixth round should have never have rung and so that's why it was a no contest which was just you know saving saving themselves or from a bad call um but my career my career didn't hurt from that they made a no contest i went on to a big fights after that and Camacho's career hurt. I mean, it was devastated afterwards. 
And uh, I think he got a bad call as far as someone telling him not to fight. I don't think it was him. I think it was his corner thinking that they had a lead in the fight and they made him stop. And so his career suffered for that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, six months after, that's when you had your um, your next fight. Back in San Antonio against the Irish tough man, Mickey Ward. It was um, it was his last fight before he had those three back-to-back fights against Arturo Gatti, in which he retired after those three. So, um, yeah, you're the, you're the last guy to fight him before Gatti. But you were able to beat him via a technical decision after just five rounds. I think there was a head clash in there. Um Tough fight, but tell us about that one. Good win again. Very, very tough fight. I mean, it's a he's very tough, and I was hitting him with some clean punches, and I would hurt him a little bit, but he's just as tough as nails. And um, so we had a slight headbutt in the second round, I believe. Maybe it was, a, it was the first round. A slight headbutt. And I looked at the ref, and I said, watch his head, because Mickey was coming in with his head. As soon as it happened, I looked at the ref and said, watch his head. And... Um, so I got the cut, and I hear his corner the whole time, the whole fight, saying, go for his cut, go for his cut, go for you know, like, to hit me in the cut. And I'm thinking and I'm thinking during the fight, like, why would you go for my cut? They called it a headbutt. You would lose if I'm ahead on the score point, mm-hmm. on the scorecard. And so anyhow, what I was trying to do was I was trying to win rounds while he was trying to make the cut worse. And so I was trying to put, I knew that if he made the cut worse, that they're going to go to the scorecard, and I'm, you know, I better win these rounds because they can go to the scorecard if he, if he makes. And that's all he concentrated on was the cut. I even told him this a few years ago. I said, "Man, you, you know, you kept making that cut worse, and you kind of did us both a favor. We the fight got stopped early, and he laughed about it. He laughed about it, but I think that's what happened. He was going for the cut, and I was going for the win. <laughs> and." um you know, after that, you're out the ring for a year and two weeks. Um, so quite inactive there. Maybe even the longest layoff of your career before you jump straight in with the WBC, IBF, and WBA super lightweight world champion. So we're up at 140 now. Of course, I'm talking about Costa Zoo. Uh, you had to travel to Melbourne, Australia for the fight. Um, am I right in saying, Jesse, that you flew out there six months prior to the fight? No, no, that, I, I've read that before. It never happened. But first of all, I can't believe I took a year off before the Costa Zoo fight. Yeah. Was it that long before a fight? Yeah, 54 oh, weeks. I didn't realize that. Wow, that's a long time. Um, no, we, we only went out there two weeks before the fight. I, I went out there two weeks before the fight, um, before Costa Zoo. Okay. Not six months. Yeah, that's quite strange. I was thinking that's that's a pretty long time to get acclimatized when I read that. But uh, that would be nice though. Six months in Melbourne would be beautiful. <laughs> a beautiful, a beautiful country. But yeah, just tell us about that one. Obviously, you were pulled out by your corner after six completed rounds, um, and also just the whole experience. Really, like you say, it was. You know, it, it sounds like a nice place. Spending six months would have been nice. What was the whole experience like traveling to a place like that to fight a guy like him? Yeah, first of all, amazing, amazing uh, people there in, our, in Melbourne, in Australia. Um, they treated us with nothing, with nothing but class. Um, I loved it there. I love the people there. I love, you know, Costa a great guy. Everybody was just top notch. Um, the fight was great I, I i was doing great in the first fight um i mean i was doing great in the first few rounds 
uh, I got a busted eardrum in the probably in the fifth round. But you know, one of the things that was just devastating me was that injured rib that I had. You know, that separate rib I had four years ago, five years before that. It just was devastating, and he hit me in that rib early on in the, in the round, and my my corner knew my rib was shot, and you know, it it just um, they just called the fight because of the injury. Not just not so much the eardrum, that's what was reported. But one thing I never I never said anything about the, my rib because I didn't want people to really concentrate on the rib. But he did, and he hit me around the rib, and that was the end of that. And then, of course, after that, you put together a four-fin win, a uh, four-fin, four-fight win streak. Before um, you also boxed on the undercard of Pacquiao Barrera, didn't you? At some point during that, I believe. Yes, I think yes, I, I did. Yeah, it was here in San Antonio. Yeah, and um, I, I can't recall who I fought, but yeah, it was a, a decent fight. Um, I think I got the guy out of there in three or four rounds, and then I was able to watch the Pacquiao Barrera fight, which is a great fight. Yeah, it was uh, Fernando Mina, I believe. Okay, yeah, I stopped him in the second, I believe. There we go. <laughs> and um, and then, yeah, your final fight, you boxed the late Arturo Gatti. Uh, you were down twice in the fifth round where the where the knockout loss came. Um, yeah, just tell us about that one. Just, uh, again, uh, a good fight. Uh, you know, injuries. You know, I was 38 years old at the time. Uh, just, you know, wear and tear my body throughout the years uh, just caught up with me. You know, I had a good fight with Bojado before the Gotti fight. I had a great fight with Bojado. But during the fight with Bojado, the first four rounds, I was so close to just taking a knee and calling it a career because of that rib injury. Mm. He kept hitting me there with straight right hands to the rib. And I was just looking. I tell people this so many times that, I was looking for a spot to take a knee and say, I'm done, because I couldn't take the pain anymore. So in doing that, um, I, uh, you know, it was, I was so close to just taking a knee and say, I'm done. I, I'm here. That's my career. But by the time I knew it, it was the sixth round, and I knew I was winning the fight. And, and ironically, he didn't hit me there anymore, or maybe I would have taken a knee, and that got me, that got me the win, and it got me to, to the Gotti fight afterwards. And, and with Gotti, you know, tough, tough fighter. We all know he's a tough fighter, but he completely surprised us because we thought he was going to come after me and try and knock me out. But kind of, he played. He played. You know, I think Buddy McGirt told me this uh, last year was that they didn't want to box. They didn't want to slug with me because they. He said, God. He said he told Gotti, "You're not going to slug with Leha. You're going to box him." And Gotti got upset. He got upset because Buddy McGirt wanted wanted him to box. He wanted to come after me. And Buddy McGregor said, no, you're going to box him because he's too, he's too smart. He's too smart in there. He's going to pick you apart. And he's going to pick you apart inside the ring. If you try to slug with him, you need to box him. And that's what they did. They caught us completely by surprise because we never thought he was going to try to outbox me and use this reach and distance from the outside. And he did that. And while him doing that made me have to force the action. And that's why I got caught. Yeah, like I said, we didn't get to see uh, much boxing prior to that from from Arturo Gatti. It was uh, very much a seek and destroy type of fighter. Um, so yeah, you you know you called it a career. Um, I believe just the week after that fight, there obviously 
Um, a very impressive record and resume, most importantly. 47 and 7 with two draws. It should have been 48 and 6 with two draws. Um, I want to ask you a couple of, I want to ask you a couple of kind of, you know, quick questions um, about, you know, just things that took place in your career, whatever. I want to ask you this. Did you ever have the itch at any point to come back? I know this injury seemed to get worse and worse over the, over time, but was was there ever a period where you thought, you know what, maybe I could come back and have one or two more or not? Well, no, that's why I fought till I was 38 because I knew I was too old to come back. But at one point after retired, uh, Julio Cesar Chavez called me out. He had mentioned my name after a fight that he would want to fight me next. And that was probably about six to seven months after I retired. Nothing ever mater- materialized from that. And so I called it a career. I was good to go. Okay. And um, I want to ask you this as well. Um, who was the hardest puncher you ever boxed? I'm expecting you to say probably one of the bigger names, but I also want to point out um, Jose Rodriguez. He could punch as well. I remember you boxed him. Yes, um, the the name that every time someone says who's the hardest puncher, I always got to say uh, um, Oscar De La Hoya, the hardest puncher. Mm. And and when I say that, I tell people, he's knocked out people at 130, he knocked out people at 135, 140, 147, 154, and 160. So he had a lot of power. Yeah, for sure. And I want to ask you this. <laughs> um, do you have... Any existing regrets? If you could go back and change something, would you? Um, not that I know. But I think I did everything the right way. I challenged the best fighters in the world. I won two world titles. I fought a Zuma Nelson four times. I, I have a great resume and all the fighters I had. I had the same manager from day one. I did it the right way, I believe. Okay. And you did. You're you're 100% right. You boxed all the big names. You certainly did. But was there anyone that you'd have liked to fight but didn't get the opportunity to do so? You know, maybe that rematch with Gabe Ruelas would have been a good one. Yeah. Uh, It just didn't happen because, you know, of the rib injury. And then I fought Shane Mosley afterwards. That would have been a good one to, you know, just to redeem myself because I knew I was a better fighter. Um but that, that's it. I, I don't have any regrets. I did it the right way. We we fought the best fighters. I made good money. I fought on Showtime. And I was on TV. Of my 57 fights, I think I was on TV at least 44 times or 40 times. So, we, you know, I got good publicity. I was uh, – my name was pretty big in the 80s and 90s. Uh, you know, I think we did great. We had, we had a great team. And I want to ask you, who we spoke about the, the hardest puncher. Who was the best opponent, though, all around, like the best? Well, see, there's, I get some flack from it because I tell people the all, and people, you know, when I explain it, people kind of, they kind of say, you're right. He was the, probably the best all-around fighter. Um, but, you know, it's because I, I beat this guy. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't mean he was the best just because I beat him, but. You know, the, I, like Oscar had the height and he had the power. Shane Mosley had the speed uh, and movement. Uh, Azuma Nelson had power and aggressiveness. And But there was one guy who had everything. And I beat him, though, but one guy had everything was Francisco Bojado. He had power. He had speed. He had ring savvy. He had uh, experience. He had everything. But one thing I think he was lacking was... Um, 
work ethic. Maybe he didn't work as hard, but I was able to beat him in that one fight. But I think, I mean, everyone, it wasn't me. It was everyone else saying he was probably the best fighter to come around since Oscar De La Hoya. Yeah, I mean, that was a good win, of course. But um, another win that, I mean, I probably should have stopped um, when when we mentioned this and we were going through the timeline, but a brilliant win for you has to be Troy Dorsey. I mean, especially at that time, not just because he was a former world champion, but, you know, when you actually think, you know, he'd been in there with the likes of Kevin Kelly, the likes of Jorge Paez, the likes of Manuel Medina, Tom Johnson, all these brilliant fighters. They couldn't stop him. You got him out of there. That was a real statement. Again, that's a brilliant win. Yeah, we had a great game plan for that fight. Um, Troy Dorsey was coming straight. I mean, Troy Dorsey is relentless. And and he and I became good friends um, after that. Uh, And we still speak to this day. But he was, I told Troy, one or two more rounds and I was done because I was so tired of that pressure he was putting on me. Uh, he was relentless and nonstop. And I told him, one or two more rounds and he probably would have got me out. So that was, he was happy about that. But uh, it was a great win for me. It was on NBC TV. So, you know, it helped my ratings and it helped my name. Uh, it was a good win. Yeah, for sure. And um, I want to ask you this, Jesse. What are you up to these days? What gets you out of bed these days? Well, I have a boxing fitness gym with my sons here in San Antonio, and we train businessmen, businesswomen, young kids, amateur fighters. We train the San Antonio Spurs. We kind of train everybody here in San Antonio, and um, it's a good business, and we're, we're doing well. I'm pleased to hear that, my friend. And, um, of course, you've got that brilliant picture of yourself and Muhammad Ali. You see your display picture, and, and, and uh, you know, I've seen it a couple of times. Was that the only time you met him? How was that? That's the only time I, see, I had seen him before. But uh, when, I met him, or when I met him was in 2005, after I retired. There was a teacher's conference here in San Antonio. And uh, I called my attorney, who's a good friend of mine, and I said, I have to meet Ali. I have to meet him. He's in San Antonio. There may never be another chance he comes to San Antonio. I have to meet him. He goes, well, let's go down there and try to meet him. So we go down to the convention hall. And there's a big desk set up with people. There, you know, People are registering people in to come in. And I talked to a, the lady that's up front. And I said, we were invited. I'm making this up, of course. I said, we were invited by Ali's camp to come and meet the champ. And she looks for my name on the list, and I'm not on the list. She goes, I don't see you on the list. I said, I'm not on the list. We were invited by him to come and meet him. I'm kind of thinking he may know who I am, maybe. I don't know. But I'm just trying anything I can to try to meet him. And uh, this goes on for about 10 minutes. Other people are looking for my name on the list, and I'm not on the list. And I'm telling them I'm not on the list, but we were invited by him. And someone that recognizes me says, Mr. Leha, how can I help you? And I said, well, we were invited by the champ to come and meet him here at this. And she goes, hold on one second. She goes and gets the security guard. And I look at my attorney and I say, oh, they're kicking us out. And the security guard goes, come follow me, Mr. Leha. And so we, he walks through a couple of doors. He goes down the hall. And we walk into a room. And it's Muhammad Ali and his wife, Lani, inside their suite. Wow. And I stayed there for an hour talking with them and taking pictures and joking around with them. So it was amazing. I bet you'll never probably, forget that. Probably the highlight... Probably next to winning my world title, the highlight of my boxing career. Oh, that's beautiful, man. 
That's amazing, man. I love yeah. that. That's beautiful. What a brilliant, what yeah. a brilliant story. And um, I just want to ask you the last two questions, Jesse. Um, you know, you had a brilliant career. You're, you, you know, you're you're doing something you love right now with your son, which is brilliant. Um, are you a happy man? We speak to a lot of boxers. Some of them aren't happy at the end of everything. Are you a happy man this these days in 2020? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I have a great life. I have. I mean, I've been married for 31 years uh, with my wife that we've been together since we were 12 years old. Oh, I have two beautiful. amazing sons. I have two amazing sons that work with us, that work with me, and I get to see every day. Uh, I had a great career, and I'm still working now, and, and I'm having fun doing it. It almost doesn't seem like work because you enjoy it. And so I, I think it's not about the money. It's not about – it's about being happy, and, I, and I'm a happy man. So to me uh, – I've, I've made it. Yeah, you're still winning at life, even in 2020. Still winning. Brilliant, man. Still winning, yes, sir. And I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, but this is a question we ask to everyone that we speak to from overseas, Jesse. Um, I want to, I want to ask you this. This would be interesting. Who's your favorite UK fighter? Any era UK fighter? Who springs to mind? <laughs> wow, that's a great question. Because there's been so many great fighters. And there's so many of them. You know, they had, I can't remember them all, but for some reason, the biggest, the name, the, when you said UK fighter, Prince Nassim Hamed always pops into my head. Yeah. That's who I see. What an amazing, he fought in the 90s, of course, and every time he fought was an amazing attraction. He had power in both hands. He was a small guy like me, 125 pounds. He was amazing. He had some great fights, so... Right off the bat, I have to say, you know, Prince Nassim Ahmed, and you know what? Well, a good friend of mine, uh, Ricky Hatton, another great fighter, Ricky Hatton. Yeah, two very popular answers. Prince Nassim Ahmed, pretty much everyone says his name when I ask that question. We had um, Kevin Kelly on last week's show. Of course, there was a lot to talk about uh, there with him. Yeah. Um, and just finally, if if you've got if you've got any closing words just to sign out with Jesse before we let you go, I'm guessing you probably don't speak to the UK media too often. You've got a lot of fans over here. What's yeah. your message to those guys that support you from overseas? Well, first of all, I mean, uh, you cannot do it without the fans. I mean, we're, we do what we do a lot of times because of the fans and the, and uh, the support they give us. Even if they don't know us, we know there's people supporting us. Um, I visited. London before and I went out to Wales and I enjoyed it. The people are amazing there. And, you know, just from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank them for being themselves and being true sports fans, not only in boxing, but in football and cricket and everything else you guys do over there, but amazing sports fans. And I'm just proud that I was able to meet so many of them when I was in London and Wales. Excellent, my friend. I, I thank you on behalf of the UK boxing fans. Listen, Jesse, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you this week. Thank you so much for your time. Best wishes with everything. I hope we can speak again sometime in the future, my friend. I hope so too. Thank you so much. Okay, and this wraps up episode 248 of the Box Hard Podcast. I've been your host, Joey Coastman. The former heavyweight world title challenger, Eddie Chambers, has been with me for the duration of the show. I hope you all enjoy his 
his uh, in-depth stories behind the scenes of some of his fights throughout his career. A huge shout-out, of course, to our sole guest on this week's podcast, the former WBC Super Featherweight World Champion Jesse James Leha. It was a real pleasure to speak with him. I really enjoyed that interview. But most of all, thank you all for listening to this week's podcast. That goes out to our listeners. Boxing is slowly but steadily returning to our screens. Enjoy your weekends, people. Stay safe, and we shall see you all again next week.